First Chronicles chapter 11. First Chronicles chapter 11. And the study tonight is entitled, God Keeps His Promises. God Keeps His Promises. Chronicles emphasized that God said David would be the ruler. Even though God used the hard work of many other people, even some of Saul's own family, to make that happen. God is still sovereign over history today. God directs people and he directs events to do his will. And Chronicles shows us that no matter what people might do to try to get in the way of God's work, they can't stop him. He still controls all events. He still controls everything that happens and he works his will in those things. We read in Psalm 33, 10 through 11, the Lord frustrates the plans of the nations and thwarts all their schemes. But the Lord's plans stand firm forever. His intentions can never be shaken. You see, the will of God comes from the heart of God and it'll always come to pass. So let's begin now with verses 1 through 3 here in chapter 11. Then all Israel came together to David at Hebron, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also, in time past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over my people. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with him at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. So we see here the promise fulfilled that David would be made king of Israel. The fact is made clear in these verses that in due time, and it's always God's time, after waiting a long time and after a lot of testing of of faith and patience, the promise of the throne was given to David. It's been said, they who wait on providence will never lack a providence on which to wait. But you know what? We, We have to watch out. That we don't make a providence something that, that is operating apart from God. In other words, that, you know, we, we don't make it happen. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And it's really the living God working in the area of material things for what's best for his people. Again, God's promise of the throne was made to David. God promised David that the throne... Years before, while he was a young boy, would be his. And he was promised that throne. And he was anointed by Samuel in the Spirit of God years before he ever saw the throne. But you see, he wasn't promised when it would happen. God's promises are a sure thing. God's word is a sure thing. You can, you, you, it's going to come to pass. But those promises might come to pass for years to come. And just for the sole purpose of developing our dependence and our trust. And until God decides the right time for those promises to be fulfilled. When David was finally anointed king over Israel. Think of it. 20 years had passed. Since he was promised that he would be king. Since he was anointed by Samuel to be king. But understand God's promises are worth waiting for. Even when his timing doesn't meet our expectations. Or our desires. We read in Hebrews 10.23. Let us hold fast or cling to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. 
So cling, on, cling to, that, to, to that promise. Cling to that hope. Don't waver because He's promised it and it's going to, it's going to come to pass. Hebrews 6.16 says, And so after He, that is Abraham, notice, had patiently endured, He obtained the promise. Notice carefully what it says. After He patiently endured, He obtained the promise. And when David was promised the throne, the fulfillment seemed very unlikely. I mean, it, it, it's because Saul was still king at the time. You know, and how many times when God gives you a promise, you think, oh, it'll never happen. There's no way it can happen because you're looking at the circumstances and you're, 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 you're you know, thinking by your emotions. And, and there were also no outward signs that, that Saul's rule was weakening. There were no danger signs that the people weren't satisfied with Saul as their king. Saul was still strong, he was still healthy, and so by all outward appearances, it looked like he was going to live and rule for a long time. Not only that, King Saul also had sons, and it was customary in that day that your son, one of your sons would always take the throne. So as time went on, and Saul's hatred for David, uh, it, that couldn't help but create division between them that would really hinder, and if not totally stopping him from getting the support of all the people. So when you look at all these things, when you look at all of these outward circumstances, the odds were stacked against David that he'd ever sit on the throne. But somebody had wisely said that the unexpected is a thing that happens and what seems impossible often becomes the fact. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He, God, turns it wherever he wants. Psalm 75, 6 and 7, for exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down and he exalts another. God puts peoples on throne, people on thrones and he takes them down. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 10, 7, I have seen servants on horses while princes walk on the ground like servants. God is in control. And a man who truly waits for God's promises is never worried by the way things appear or what seem to be impossible circumstances. In Joshua 1, if you remember, Joshua commanded the people to prepare themselves to cross the Jordan River. And he told them, in three days you will cross over. And he encouraged them by saying, remember the word of Moses. Reminding them earlier, God had promised them this land. Now, he told them they were going to cross, but he didn't tell them how. <laughs> he didn't tell them how they were going to cross. The river that, 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 that they were preparing to go forward, was go, they were going by faith. Faith in God's word. Even though they could stand there and say, well, you know what? Do we got any boat builders here? We don't have any boats. The, the river was, was at flood, flood height. Obviously, it was a fast current. They saw many difficulties. But you know what? We don't see anything of any complaints. We should always follow our Lord even when it seems impossible or hopeless. Faith doesn't think about the present problems. Like I said, they weren't told how they were going to get across. They were just told they were going to get across. And you know what? When it comes to God, how is not important. It's like going to the doctor and I break my arm. All I want to know is, doctors, is it going to get better? I don't say, okay, doc, look, how are you going to fix this? What are you going to do? How is it going to work? How's the, how, 
I, I don't care. All I want to know is, is it going to get better? And if God says it's going to get better, it's going to get better. How he does it, it's up to you, Lord. I just want to know that it's going to get better. Never God, judge God's faithfulness by what you see. That is your circumstances or how you feel through your emotions. Following God's lead, a man's or woman's way unfolds one step at a time. And though David waited for the promise, he never forced the fulfillment of that promise. David never tried to make it happen through his own will, through his own works. He set a very good example and a moral example. David never tried to force God's hand. He never forced himself into high positions. He never resisted Saul's hatred when he could have easily killed Saul and removed his problem. He could have removed Saul from his life. He could have made life a lot easier by killing Saul when he had the opportunity, which would open the way for the throne as well. But you see, David wouldn't take matters into his own hands. We read in 1 Samuel 26, 9 through 11, David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. Speaking of Saul, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, notice, the Lord shall strike him or his day shall come to die or he shall go out to battle and perish. So he told Abishai, look, you know, he he may die naturally in in God's time. He might go out to battle and perish. You know, he, he, he might, you know, God might strike him dead. God can take him out in any way that he wants to. So he said, Abishai, leave him alone. He said, the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. He said, so please, Abishai, take the spear and the jug of water that were by his head and let's get out of here. And even when Saul was dead, David didn't push or try to take control of the kingdom. Again, you could say this was a good plan. But it was really something a lot deeper than just a good plan. It was true godliness on David's part. That that godliness shows itself by waiting on God and waiting for him to do with David what God said he would do. A common sin by Christians is saying we trust God and then we take things into our own hands. We push and we shove and we try to make things happen and work. We try to make things fit. Well, all the while I say, oh, I'm trusting God, but I'm knocking down the doors to get the job done. God makes his providences eventually work out his promises. Remember, everything that happens in all events are under God's control. And the hearts of men are well. They're in his hands. God is in control of all of man's plans. Proverbs 69 says, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We read in Proverbs 16, the lot or dice are cast into the lap or otherwise the dice are thrown. But it's every decision is from the Lord. You might throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they will fall. So those long years of God's to work in, he's putting things together. He puts the people together and he makes them serve his purposes. If you remember, it wasn't that long ago in 2 Kings. It was chapter 8, the Shunammite woman. Remember, God was, uh, Elijah was told that a famine was coming. God, and, and Elijah tells the Shunammite woman to, woman to go and, and to find a place to live and stay there for seven years until the famine was over. And when she comes back after the seven years, she goes back to her house. It was somebody had taken it. Somebody was living in it. Somebody had taken all of her belongings. 
Now, again, she could have thought, well, that's what I get for obeying God. I, I do what he tells me and I come back and I've lost everything. God knew that that was going to happen. And God, while she was gone that seven years, was preparing everything. That, so when she came back, the king that she went to see easily and openly said, I'll give it back to you and more. See, those seven years that she was gone, it wasn't that nothing was happening. God knew when she left for those seven years, that was going to happen. So in that process of seven years, he was working behind the scenes. So when she came back, hey, no problem. And she got her house back. One of the greatest wonders in life is the way things turn out, the way they unfold. And seemingly, what seems like impossible, those things are reached. In Paul's mind, we know in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. And a good illustration of this is seen in the events that led to David taking the throne. So what's our responsibility in all of this? What are the things that we need to do when it comes to God's promises? What do we do when he gives us a promise? Simply this, do the right thing as far as you know what it is. And depend upon God's strength every day and rest assured that the faithful God will keep his promises. Now look at verses 4 and 9, 4 through 9. <clears throat> and David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. But the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you shall not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Now David said, whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. And Joab, the son of Zariah, went up first and became chief. Then David dwelt in the stronghold. Therefore, they call it the city of David. And he built the city around it from the Milo to the surrounding area. Joab repaired the rest of the city. So David went on and became great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. So David captures Jerusalem in these verses. David captured, it says, the stronghold here, or the fortress of Zion. Then Joab captured the city, and he was rewarded for his bravery by being promoted commander of the army. Now, Zion was the southeastern hill of Jerusalem. And when David took Zion from the Jebusites, he built a fortress on it and a palace, and Zion became the city of David. Now, in the later books of the Old Testament, Zion was sometimes used to mean Jerusalem in general and sometimes God's chosen Israel. In the New Testament, Zion is sometimes used to mean the church of God and sometimes the heavenly city. We have seen the anointed king and his servants here, speaking of Saul, David and his servants. Now we're presented to the royal residence. In all of this, though, in all of this that we see about David and his servants, we see Jesus. We've seen the anointed king, Jesus, and those who are his faithful servants. He's gone into the far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And his people will share in his glory when he returns. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And we're seeing that in Revelation when we just finished chapters four and five. Jesus purchased Zion for his loved ones and he purchased it with his own blood and they will reign with him in his glory. First of all, here, when what we see in these verses, we see the wisdom of the king. 
David did two wise things on this occasion in verses 4 through 9. Number one, he started his reign over a united Israel by an act of courage and patriotism, patriotism by capturing the fortress of Zion in verses 4 and 5. Secondly, he gave, recog- <clears throat> gave recognition and power <clears throat> to the man who earned them. Joab led the attack. David promoted him for his success in verse 6. And we learn two lessons here for all leaders for all times. Do all you can to start well. Do all you can to start well. To make a promising beginning, whether it's starting a ministry or office of any kind. It's a positive step towards, a, towards real success. So when you start a new work with new workers, give it your all for a promising start. Secondly, recognize those who deserve it. And don't let family or friendships or the recommendation of others be the person or be the reason to honor somebody. Let it be the good that you see in that person, in what they do, and especially during hard times. Because difficult times shows you the character of somebody. It shows you that leadership, that person's leadership qualities. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them, notice, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Faithful servants are to be commended. Paul said, highly esteem them. Paul said to the Philistines, or the Philippians, he said, receive them. Speaking of Epaphrodites, he said, receive Epaphrodites, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men, hold men like him in esteem. Give the recognition to the ones who earned it. Because if you have favoritism, that will soon destroy people's confidence and it will wear away their affection. Impartiality will get love and respect. Then, as the wise leader, it says in verse 7 that David dwelt in the stronghold that he took over. He won the respect and the affection of the people. He lived where the people lived. And verse 9 says, God blessed David. And if God is with us in the way he was with David, we will also grow in our greatness. We see how God's presence expanded and increased David's life. It resulted in more territory for David. God prospered him more. His enemies were defeated. His territory was increased, fulfilling the promise of Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 through 21, where it says, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Not only that, the growth of power and influence that he had personally as a result. David became more and more established in the respect and the confidence and affection of Israel. The whole nation came to give David their full and wholehearted loyalty. Also, David's presence there in the land, uh, it resulted in Israel's rise in power and influence over the neighboring nations. The kingdom of Israel had been a little or nothing It had been little or nothing in the eyes of the people around them. But now it was receiving importance. It was receiving recognition. The rulers of the east were glad to make treaties with Israel, to be on friendly terms with David. They had seen God blessing him. It increased his spiritual character, though we know he wasn't a perfect man. And David definitely suffered a temporary setback. 
But after he became king, his greatness increased materially and spiritually. We also see how God's presence is an improvement to ourselves. If God is with us, that is, with his, if his divine favor with, is with us, if his protecting and providing hand is with us, if his spirit is with us, he will increase. We will increase in our life. Also, he had temporal prosperity. Psalm 31.8 says, He may set my feet in a wide place or a safe place. We may be made by him, God, to increase greater and greater. In 1 Timothy 4.8, we read it's a sure thing, or we, it tells us it's a sure thing that God will give us increase. Also, it will increase not only our temporal prosperity, it will increase our perception of things. We can see, know, and understand more and more of God and ourselves. We can, we can understand and see and know more of the meaning and the role of our life, of His holy will as shown to us through His, war, through his word. We'll also increase in the way of our affections. God will expand our heart. He'll expand our understanding. And we can be more compassionate. We'll have kinder feelings towards all those who are the most needy. Also, he will expand our influence. He will increase our influence. We'll become more of a blessing to those that we have to deal with. As God teaches us and as he disciplines us and he promotes us, we can have a growing influence over our family, over our friends, and over our neighbors. He will also increase our hopes. Now, these, hope, these hopes, the ones that we have in this world, will be slowly drawn from this earth. And we will look forward to the fullness of eternity. This life which presents itself as, as, as enjoyment, as endless enjoyment, we will look towards eternity with a more never-ending service, knowing that we're going to be with him and serving him for eternity. Look at verses 10 through 14 now. Now these were the heads of the mighty men who David had, who strengthened themselves with him and his kingdom, with all Israel, to make him king according to the word of the Lord, according to Israel. And this is the number of the mighty men whom David had, Jashobim, the son of, Hak- uh, of a Hakamite, Hap- uh, Hakamanite. Chief of the captains, he had lifted up his spear against 300, killed by him at one time. After him was Eliezer, the son of Adoda, the Ahoite, who was one of the three mighty men. He was with David at Pazdamim. Now there the Philistines were gathered for battle, and there was a, a piece of ground full of barley. So the people fled from the Philistines. But they stationed themselves in the middle of that field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. So the mighty men are listed here in these verses. Here we have the name of David's mighty men. They, are, they go all the way to verse uh, uh, 47. But we learn from these mighty men that no man, it doesn't matter how great he is, it doesn't matter how wise he is, can do without the support of others. David's rise to the throne was mostly due to his own character and his own actions, but he certainly couldn't have or wouldn't have become king over Israel if it hadn't been for these mighty men who he was surrounded by. These mighty men that verse 10 says strengthened themselves with him to make him king. You see, and though the power and glory of David's long reign was mostly the result of his own wisdom and courage and loyalty to God, the deeds, the actions of these mighty men had a lot to do with the victories that David won. These men had a lot to do with the power that David had. 
And if you're a Christian leader, understand that, that, that no, no leader can do great things without an active following of brave and true men and women who strengthen themselves with him. For all of the famous men and women who did great things for Christ in the world, there were others around them. Less important, maybe in position, but not a, 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 as, as Christians or, or brothers and sisters. There's nobody more important than anybody else. We may have different positions. Their names may not be known. They might even been forgotten. But their help guaranteed their success, those leaders' successes. And all who would accomplish a lot for God, they need to know, they need to surround themselves with others who will put themselves second and will hold up their hands. Leonard Bernstein, who was an American composer, conductor, concert pianist, author, and educator, he was quoted as saying, the hardest instrument in the orchestra to play is second fiddle. Nobody wants to be second these days. Nobody. And this is presumably true because the individual has to work just as hard as the first violinist. But yet he has to be content with a seemingly subordinate role in the orchestra. But this is the neat thing. With God, there are no second fiddles. Every person serving God has a valuable role to play. And nobody is more or less important than anybody else. 1 Corinthians reminds us that as Christ's body, each of us have functions that are both unique and independent. Some people will be chosen to take the lead. Others will be given the tasks of being encouragers and companions for those leaders. But nobody is meant to function alone. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God or in the service of God. No one is meant to function alone apart from the body of Christ or in opposition with the body of Christ because we are all equally important and dependent. That men may serve a good cause motivated by different reasons. We see that here. That men may serve a good cause, but motivated by different reasons. And I doubt that all of those who, it says in verse 10, strengthened themselves with David according to the word of the Lord. I doubt that they did it just solely on the basis that they were just carrying out the divine will. I'll bet you they had their personal ambitions. That's human nature. The palace at Jerusalem, no doubt, had its rivalries and its jealousies. People, men jockeying for positions. And the mighty men were probably motivated to do do daring things because they hoped to have a name among the three that are mentioned in verse 20 and 24. If not the first three, then among the 30 that are mentioned in verse 25. And if not the 30, to be counted among the valiant men of the armies, mentioned in verse 26. In our Christian warfare, we should be motivated by what's important. And that is, first, the love of Christ and the love of man and not for self-promotion. We might also be affected by things less important than these by the desire to get our leader's approval. Or we're hoping to get a big reward. That men may desire, we also see that men may dedicate their physical ability to the service of God and their fellow men. This should be our reason for service. Now, these men who were worthy of being named here, they were doing an important service to their people. 
And David's reign, David being king, had a particular serious influence on the whole plan of God. It was probably a critical part in the whole redemptive chain of events that were taking place. And knowing this, in light of these daring acts of these heroes, these these brave warriors who helped to put David in power and to keep him on the throne, added to the work of God and man's redemption. Also, usually in other ways than these, God acts and accepts our service. Now, in these times that we live in, he asks that our, that for, for moral character rather than you know, a reputation. He asks for moral uh, courage rather than physical courage. He asks us to serve in obscurity rather than to be known. He asks us to serve with the sword of the spirit rather than the sword of war. That's how we're to win victories. And that's how we're to give service to the Lord. Verses 15 through 47, but I'm going to read verses 15 through 25, and then beginning in 26, if you want to read the rest of the names, go for it. But uh, (laughs) verses 15 through 25, because there's a portion there that we want to look at. Beginning with verse 15. Now three of the 30 chief men went down to the rock to David, into the cave of Adullam, and the army of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O my God, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who have put their lives in jeopardy? For at the risk of their lives, they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by, three, by the three mighty men. Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief of another three. He had lifted up his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Of the three, he was more honored than the other two men. Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, a man of great height, five cubits tall. In the Egyptian's hand there was a spear like a weaver's beam. And he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear." These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did and won the name among three mighty men. Indeed, he was more honored than the thirty, but he did not attain to the first three, and David appointed him over, uh, uh, over his guard. And then the rest of them are the names of, all, uh, of many more of David's warriors. But in verses 15 through 25, we have one of the most impressive, touching, moving, whatever you want to call it, events in David's amazing life. It shows us his kindness and his godliness. But it also shows us the kind of men that he had serving with him. It started out with a desire that David had. David was with his faithful army of brave men. These followers of his. He was in the stronghold on the borders of of Philistine territory. Now, the enemy possessed the area that he used to live in and that he used to enjoy when he was a young boy. But now it was a place of danger and hardship. 
So it was only natural for David that he would want a drink of refreshing cool water from the well that flowed out from the hillside near his father's fields. You see, he he wanted to be home. He was remembering and holding on to those childhood memories. It was all of these things that triggered that desire for him to say, oh, if only someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem. He would just probably, you know, whispered it under his breath or, you know, and just to himself. But these men heard him. The men that David had around him, they were men that were ready for anything. They were they were ready to take risks. They were daring. They were fearless. They were prompt. And yet you can see they had tender hearts. They were able to understand a wish, a wish like the one that their leader expressed. And it was a brave thing that these men did because they, they, they broke through enemy lines, risking their own lives for David to bring him that water that he wanted so badly from that well of Bethlehem. And then we see the self-sacrificing and honorable act of David. David respected the faithfulness and the kindness and the bravery of these three men so much he couldn't drink the water. Because to him it seemed like the water was the blood of these heroes. David had this rare ability to draw men to himself with sold out devotion to him. And he won more than just their faithfulness. He also won their eager and loving devotion. But you see, it, it was, it was, this water was just too precious to David for him to drink. And that's why he poured the water out to the Lord as a holy drink offering before the Lord, giving his best to God. Now, these guys could have said, I can't believe you did that, David. We risked our lives all the way, all the way down there and you're not going to drink it. But again, he showed his, his, his tenderness for these men. He says, this is, this, basically, this is like their blood. They went and risked their lives for me. And he didn't feel worthy to drink it. Now that was David. And think about David's greater son, the son of David, Jesus Christ. Jesus is a lot more worthy of the unhesitating and uncalculating devotion of his servants like these three men were to David. Powerful lesson here. We learn in closing these lessons we learn the sacredness and the beauty of our feelings. That is, David's childhood, he was still remembering home in his childhood. They, they were unforgettable. And it's, it's not a sign of weakness to, to you know, cherish those things. Secondly, we see the beauty of his self-sacrifice. What's more admirable than somebody who's willing to take all risks to serve and to make those that we honor and love happy. And lastly, the supremacy of the superiority of the divine claims. God's claims to us. God has a right to our hearts. He has a right to all that's dear to our hearts because you see, He owns our hearts because He purchased our hearts with His own blood. And because He owns our heart, we shouldn't withhold anything that belongs to Him. But we should surrender all. Father, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you, Father, for the lessons that we glean here, Father, from this chapter. 
And Lord, we do pray that, Father, we would study them and see how we can apply them to our own lives, God. That, Father, we would, that we would be servants like these three men that were sold out for David, God. They were fearless. They were eager to serve. And they were prompt. They weren't reluctant to serve. They wanted to serve their leader. How much more should we serve our leader, Jesus Christ? How much more should we be willing and fearless and unhesitant in serving our Jesus. God, help us to be all of those things in our service to you, God. Help us to fear nothing, Lord. Lord, help us not to hesitate. God, help us to be eager and willing to serve you, Lord. So, Father, we would ask, God, that you would help us to be those kinds of servants, Lord. And maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Christ. You've never received him as your Lord and Savior. Then we pray that tonight would be that night. As the worship team leads us in a time of worship. If God has spoken to you through this word tonight, we do pray. If you want to receive Christ as your Lord and your Savior, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front. And I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith. Mm-hmm.